Welcome, welcome. Well, hey, if you're uh, just now jumping in and joining us here at Legacy Church, we are going through a new series, or continuing on in the series. We just started new a couple weeks ago on Ephesians called Coram Deo. Our status update in Ephesians. And so we're looking at that. But the reason why I asked you guys what you did with your Saturday morning, and I'm about to revoke my man card here publicly in front of everybody. Yes, it's true. I got up at six o'clock and watched the royal wedding. Yes, I did. Now you might be saying, well, it's obvious, Mason, you have two daughters, they woke you up. No. Man card ripped in half. I got up, washed it, and I realized I guess I should wake my daughters up to come watch this wedding. So I woke up Abigail. Anna Claire would have slapped me if I woke her up. She's not a morning person. And uh, so we got up and we watched the full service while we were watching. I mean, and it was actually, if you're kind of uh, into all the, uh, the, ceremonial things of weddings and how it connects with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was actually very, very interesting. I mean, you know, I wasn't into all the different, you know, that she passed up Calvin Klein to go with the French designer, you know, I didn't even pay attention to any of that stuff, but maybe I did, but <laughs> it was very, very interesting, but here's why, I'll, I'll give my disclaimer, okay, maybe I can get some man points back, here's why. I think I was into it a little bit. Lately, I've just been into the whole World War II from a British perspective thing. And so anybody in here watch Dunkirk, the movie? Okay, there's lots of bombs and blood and guts, all right? Yeah, all right? Man card coming back. And then I watched The Darkest Hour. Anybody watch that one? Okay, there's zero blood and guts in that one. You think there's going to be, but it's intense and awesome even without it. And so that was a great one, Winston Churchill. But then I think what has intrigued me the most is I've been watching that. We, me and my wife finished watching that Netflix series called The Crown. Anybody in here watch that? If you haven't, it's, it's pretty good. We watched that whole thing. And, and one of my favorite, you know, kind of uh, instances in that series is Winston Churchill's relationship with the queen. And in particular, one thing he does every time he enters into her presence you know, this is Winston Churchill we're talking about, hero from World War I, prime minister during World War II. The British Bulldog was his nickname. He used to smoke cigars naked while his apprentice would take notes. And the, I mean, it's like, who does that? Well, he does. Winston Churchill, I mean, he was just a man's man, the British Bulldog, probably one of the most powerful people in the world, but when he would enter in to the presence of, a, of the queen, he would be bowed down. He would take steps forward, and like we see in that picture there, he would take her hand and kiss it, and they would have their meeting. And then after the meeting, he would take her hand and kiss it, and he would slowly back up, bow down, turn around, and exit every time. And I always thought, man, how interesting that this powerful army veteran war hero, the British bulldog, would change his posture in the presence of this royalty, when in some ways I felt like he could have maybe even circumvented that and just been himself. But there was something about his respect for what that title meant of monarch that affected him. And this morning, what I want to do 
is look at this God and eternal king, the monarch of all the universe, the authority, the sovereign, the alpha and the omega, and what our response and what Paul's response in Ephesians was to this great God, this eternal king who has done great things for us. In fact, Luke has done just an excellent job. Our pastor Luke, he's gone. He was going to go run an Ironman, right, Jordan? But Mother Nature changed the plans, and so now he just had a real expensive trip to see his mom in Texas. So they canceled the Ironman. So when he gets back, just tell him, hey, man, nice job on that Ironman. Good job, buddy, and give him a hard time. But he did a great job of walking us through the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians, looking at this great and awesome God who has done a few things. One that Luke reminded us of is one that he has chosen and sealed us in Jesus Christ. This king of the universe, this Lord of all creation, has taken us, our, his virtual spiritual enemies of God, and has not only chosen us before the creation of the world and predestined us, but he has also sealed us in his Holy Spirit to never be departed from his family. What an amazing thing he has done. And, and Luke did a great job of unpacking that for us doctrinally. Another thing we looked at is he didn't just pick us because of great merits or things we have done. No, it was an unconditional election. He saved us by grace. It was the free gift of God, not by any kind of work so that no man could boast. And it leaves us in this state of all of undeserving. I do not deserve to be in this presence of a king. But yet, he has saved me by his grace and put me in his kingdom and called me a son or a daughter of the king. And then from there, he helped us understand how we're united in one body, regardless of our race or tribe or background or whatever we may have differences in. But in Christ, as the chosen, sealed, saved by grace people, we are united in one body, and not only united, it's not that just we're one together in one body, but we're also equal in our differences. We have different things we bring to the table, different backgrounds and experiences, different genders and races, and all those different things that not only are united, but equal in their value before the king, and they're used for his great kingdom. And because of all this, we get through chapters one, two, and half of three, and Paul just stops for a moment and does the only reverent response there is to do, just like Winston Churchill does when he sees that queen, is he bows. He bows down. Let's pick up there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, and I'll read this for us. This is God's word. For this reason, all the things we just talked about, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever 
and ever. Amen. Paul's response to these great doctrines of saving grace, of unity in the church, of a kingdom that will come, his response to all this was awe, to where it literally, physically makes him want to bow before the king. The prophet Isaiah, when he had a vision of the king, literally, could, all he could say is, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm undeserving. He was in that posture of prostrate before this holy God. And upon thinking about these doctrines, that's really what Paul's response was. I bowed down. And all I can do is pray that the people of Ephesus and those who read this circulating letter will understand these great doctrines and it will change their lives. Because the thing is why he's praying here, what he's praying for ultimately, spiritually for the church and for us, is for a knowledge, a spiritual knowledge of who this great king is. Because like the old phrase says, knowledge is power. That was first coined in the 1500s by a French philosopher. Knowledge is power. In the context that I'm in, I'm in college ministry. And so we're around academic knowledge all the time. The University of Tennessee is one of the well, I should say for you UT people out there, the best school in the state, right? And uh, full of academic knowledge, people are acquiring it. And Thomas Jefferson, he coined, he used and took that phrase, knowledge is power, upon the establishment of the University of West Virginia, or Virginia. And he said this, upon the establishment of this school, he said this last establishment will probably be within a mile of Charlottesville, and four for Monticello, if the system should be adopted at all by our legislature who meet within a week from this time, my hope, however, are kept in check by the ordinary character of our state legislators, the members of which do not generally possess information enough to perceive the importance of truths that knowledge is power, that knowledge is safety, and that knowledge is happiness. Now, my son just got back from his eighth grade field trip to Washington, D.C. On the way, they stopped by Monticello. You can still go there and tour and see all the different things and properties and layouts and history of all these different things. And Thomas Jefferson saw the value in academic knowledge. He saw the value of acquiring intake of an understanding of the sciences and the arts and all the different things because he knew it. It brought power. Not only did it bring power, it brought safety and happiness. Now, on the flip side of that, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, and he, the more knowledge and power he got, the more he realized God's just probably up there letting us be our own people and doing our own things. And there ultimately really is a flip side of knowledge that can be very, very unspiritual and unlife changing, though bringing many benefits to our worldly lives. There's an eternal knowledge that God puts in our hearts that leads us to eternal power. There really is. We talked about it for two and a half chapters already. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out the knowledge of what God has done from beginning to end. You see, God has put the desire for knowledge and eternity in our hearts. That's why we desire it. That's why when you gain it, you have power. But there's also a side of it 
that if it's not infused and enamored and totally engulfed by these doctrines we talked about of, of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, in the end it can lead to death. You see, I say that because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes it clear what happens when there's knowledge without the spiritual intervention of Jesus Christ in your life. Eternal separation equals ultimately no knowledge in the spiritual realm. Listen to what he said again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And one highlight I put on there is when he's talking about our depravity and our separation and our spiritual bankruptcy, he talks about how that's also true that we were bankrupt not only in spirit but in mind. So regardless of our academic gathering and our intellectual levels, on a spiritual realm, we really have no knowledge without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here in his prayer, he's praying that this church and that we would have this supernatural knowledge so that it would help us understand how far and wide and deep and rich is this love of God. And that causes us to bow down and worship. If it's really changed your life, if it's really made you a new creation. But I think it's important that we take this for a moment and look on the flip side of this prayer of what happens if we don't have the first three chapters and we just try to pursue the knowledge of God without the doctrines of grace, without the doctrines of God choosing us before the creation of the world, without the doctrines of God sealing us with his Holy Spirit. What's this knowledge without the power of the Holy Spirit? And I think it'll help us be even more enamored with this prayer that Paul prays for us in the church. So knowledge without Holy Spirit power. Here's a few observations of the flip side of this prayer. Here's what it leads to. One is never bowing to anyone. A knowledge without Holy Spirit power can lead to a posture of the opposite of bowing to where I'm not going to bow to anybody because I'm a God. And this is nothing new. In fact, it goes back to the first two human beings ever. Think about it. They're in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in a perfect, full knowledge relationship with God. That didn't mean they knew everything about him because he's eternal and infinite, but they didn't have to. They were in a perfect relationship with God. He had full knowledge of them, and they had full relationship with him. And the deception wasn't Man, I don't have enough knowledge that when Satan entered the picture in the form of the serpent, he came to Eve, and when he came to her, he said, eat of this fruit. And he didn't say, you'll be more knowledgeable. You'll have more understanding of this great God. What he said to her was this, you will be like a God. And that was the enticement. It was the power, the authority, the sovereignty to be in control of my own destiny and to have ultimate knowledge. You see, without this power and knowledge of God, we bow up 
I was talking to some guys the other day about this passage. I was like, is that spelled the same way? Boa, you know, when you puff your chest up? Instead of bow down, it's we bow up. And we start to, even on the spiritual sense, I know all these different things about God and doctrines, and I can teach well, and I can lead people to Christ, I can play worship music, I can love people unconditionally of all races and backgrounds and creeds. I can bow up with my knowledge. Or it can play itself out in a different kind of pride. God just left me off the bus of cool Christian people with all these skills and I'm of no value and I can't do anything and everything I touch turns to dirt and I have no part in God's kingdom. I guess I'm just not any good. Well, that's also a posture of pride because you don't believe chapters one, two, and half of three when it talks about who we are as children of the king. And we're trying to find knowledge and understanding outside of the scriptures. So instead of bowing, we never bow without the knowledge of the Holy Spirit and its power. The second thing, as we look at that passage and the depth of who God is and who he is in our relationship, instead of God being our father, ultimately my father is the evil one and I'm a citizen of his realm. Ephesians chapter 2. We followed the God of the air. That's Satan. That's the devil. And ultimately, the knowledge and the info we acquire and the power that we've put that into practice with is building up a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom you may be think, thinking that you're building. It's not even your own. It's not even your own. Like Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. It's one or the other. Whose kingdom are we building? And if we're not in God's kingdom, if we're not in his family, then we're in another one. And some of us might be here this morning, you're on an investigation, a spiritual journey, a pilgrimage, trying to figure out what you believe and what the truth is. And I think this is an important moment to pause and ask yourself, okay, what is the direction of my life and my knowledge and my progress on this earth and what kingdom is it building my own which is the wrong team or that of jesus christ so knowledge without holy spirit power leads to a different family membership another thing it leads to is my riches are temporary and so i live for the moment again i work primarily with 18 to 22 year olds most of which have no interest or desire to lift up jesus christ as lord and king Actually, I love to find those people and go hang out with them and throw a football around and turn that into a Bible study. I'll talk to you about how we do that later. But the primary issue that a lot of these college students that I interact with, and now even a lot of parents and other soccer and football moms and dads that I'm interacting with as I'm growing older, is there's a real sense that because I'm not in God's kingdom, whether they realize that or not, they're using their knowledge and power to build up as many things as they can because they know this is all I got. I mean, these college guys, I think whether they can verbalize it or not, they realize my life is going to stink for 50 years from 25 to 75. So I might as well live it up as much as I can right now because this is all that matters. This is all I got. And then I meet the 40-year-olds who think, man... 
I might as well get a boat and have a couple houses and do different things with this knowledge and power I have because I'm just living for the moment because, man, my kids are going to have to spoon feed me for most of my life after this. And so on and so forth. You see the cycle. When our knowledge is not grounded in the knowledge of Jesus Christ but the things of this world, that's all we have is the moment. Another thing, my heart is deceitful and dead with no room in the end when knowledge is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't have a heart that's, like Paul prayed, overflowing with the knowledge of God, but my heart is hardened. And just like when Jesus' parents were looking for a place to bring him into the world, there was no room in my heart because I had a heart of stone. Again, Solomon talks, or Ezekiel talks about that. When he says we have hearts of stone, not hearts of flesh, but God takes out that heart of stone with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit and his power. A few other things. My roots are shallow and I'm unfound and unfounded and we're tossed and turned by every wave and every issue in life. Right now in this room, we could talk about all the issues that we have either have faced or young people, you can go to any person over 45 and talk to them about the issues they will face in their life. And they will toss you and they will show you how shallow our roots are if our root system is not built up in the knowledge and the power of Jesus. My eternal state is separation when my knowledge is of the things of this world. And here's the thing. Not only am I separated from God, but most people who don't have this life-changing power and knowledge of Jesus have no clue that they're in that state. Think about that just for a minute. Before we get to a place where we're judgmental about this person acting this way on the left or this person acting this way on the right, do you realize they have no clue whatsoever of what they are missing out on? And Paul goes on in Romans to say, or before this, and says, how can they hear unless someone tells them? And brings this knowledge to him. But without it, they're lost and separated and clueless about it. And lastly, that relationship with God is not one of intimacy and depth and knowledge and love, but it's one of separation and guilt and the fact that we're enemies of God. Now, why would why just immediately go into these deep and maybe even terrifying and maybe even <laughs> downer comments? Because I think we have to go back to these things to really understand this passage and this prayer that Paul gives the church. Because I've glossed over this so many times. I, I think of old cheesy 90s songs that use these lyrics and I don't really think of how high and deep and wide the love of Christ is. It's just some little song we sang when we were little kids. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. I need to look at the opposite side of these things so I understand where I came from. And so then Paul prays this prayer of the antithesis of everything we just talked about. Let's look at it again. These are the opposite sides of all those things we just listed off. 
that are true for you, church. Ephesians 3, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. His prayer is the opposite of that, and that is what happens when Jesus Christ comes in with the saving power of the Holy Spirit. All those doctrines we, we've talked about, talked about the last few weeks. Now the problem is we try to remedy that with a worldly remedy. All those issues and those negative results that we just talked about, our natural inclination, even in our Western church, Bible Belt culture, tries to remedy those things on a man-centered level. So here's what we do. We academically take the knowledge even of the doctrines of Jesus Christ, and we try to understand those and control those from a human perspective. And what it ultimately leads to is two things. One, instead of the breadth and depth and knowledge of God that the Holy Spirit supernaturally enlightened you to, we end up shrinking God. We end up taking God and saying, how can we control and understand this doctrine in a way that gives us the authority to command what we understand about who God is and the teachings of God's word? We shrink God, we shrink the glory of God into a humanistic, we can understand this realm. We are a God, just like Adam and Eve fell into. And the fruits of that are very, very clear. All you got to do is look at church history in the United States. It leads really to one of two extremes. When we take this gospel and try to make it a natural instead of a supernatural thing, Either one, we say, hey, we can control this and whatever kind of interpretation makes you feel good, be liberated to think that and to practice that kind of theology. It's liberal theology. Is what happens when we start to worship an academic knowledge. Or two, we say, hey, these things are incomprehensible, they're mysterious, there's no way we can understand them, they're so far off, and so we just fundamentally have to follow whatever our church forefathers say to do, and so we're going to be fundamentalist in how we act and do things. And we can control our own destiny with our good works, which will enter us into heaven, whether we acknowledge that or not. There's no God who predestines and sovereign over everything. I know it says that, but really, we're in control here. We just have to fundamentally follow these good works. Now listen, I know in a room like this, we have two slants, and without the Holy Spirit, we're both going to go to one of these two extremes. Either if it feels good, do it, or you're under law, and you better follow the great ter terror of the universe and do what he says. My natural bent is kind of Fox News over here, if I'm being honest. I grew up in the rural southern Indiana my parents voted red, okay? So my natural bent's a little over this way. I've got great friends. Their natural bent is like, man, hey, if it feels good, do it. You can't tell anybody they're wrong. But either one are polar opposites, east to west, opposite of what Jesus Christ ultimately comes back to. The fact that we are saved by grace. 
not of this work so that no man can boast, but also not following the ways of this world. You see, he is the plumb line. He is the center. He is the alpha and the omega. Proverbs 14, 21 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, left or right, but in the end it leads to death. You see, an eternal problem needs an eternal answer. And Paul closes his prayer with the eternal answer, reminding the people as he prays these great blessings over them. This eternal problem we had was fulfilled with the eternal answer. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, went to our cross, which we deserved, and took our place, our place as the propitiation for our sins, and died and took on that payment and rose again three days later and left the Holy Spirit upon his ascension back into heaven, he gave us the eternal knowledge, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the answer to our eternal problem, the only knowledge we really need in him who is able to do immeasurably more. So what's our response to this? What's our response to these doctrines we've gone over over God's choosing and sealing, God's saving by grace and not by works, God's uniting us as one body and making us equal regardless of our backgrounds and what have you? What's our response? Well, the response is very, very clear in this passage, and it goes back to where we started. Our response is just like Paul's in this prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now listen, I'm not going to pause and say, okay, everybody get out of your seats. We're going to get down on our knees and get the right posture. You know, I have a good buddy of mine, he leads worship all over the country. He does these like middle of worship stops. He's like, hey, you guys don't even know what it means to lay prostrate, do you? Let me show you. <laughs> He'll literally in the middle of worship services help teach people what these different positions of prayer and worship mean. I'm not going to do that this morning. But I'm not really talking about a physical position before the God of the universe. I want to talk to you about your physical position before God. We know the truths of these first three chapters. We know the realities that we are, we're helpless sinners separated from God who needed his grace. But what's our response been to that in our hearts? Has it been one of, I'm a victim, nothing's going my way, God, you're blessing everybody but me? Has it been one of pride? I can figure this out. I'm investigating. I don't need any help from some outward power. I don't need this God. Is there a bowing in your heart? So there's really three people here today when it comes to your posture, your bowing before the Lord. The first person is the person who maybe needs to do this for the first time. 
Maybe for the first time it's now that you come to Jesus and you do as he says in Mark chapter 1. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Bow down before him. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Accept the truths of the gospel. Say, Lord, here am I. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here am I. And that doesn't mean that you've done it 30 times before physically at a youth camp where you went forward or a church where you came forward or signed a card or whatever, had an emotional experience. None of those may matter. None of those may have been spiritual bowing before the fathers where it really regenerated that heart of stone and a new heart came in. So maybe for you it's the first time. There's a second person, and I think this will be the majority of us in many ways. As I was studying this passage, looking over this prayer, this is where I was convicted. Is maybe it's spiritually been a long time since I've had that posture of bowing before the Father. I mean, think about it, guys. I'm a professional Christian. My job is to go on a college campus, proclaim the good news of Jesus to lost and dying spiritual students, lead them to Christ, disciple them, train them to do the same thing, and send them out as missionaries to their world. And I'm really good about making that a job, just like I said, full-time Christian. And the spiritual posture of my heart many times is not a reverence and awe, a how deep and wide and Long and deep is the love of God who's done these great things for me. No, it's how many people are coming to church? How happy is my life and secure and padded to where I'm a good voting Republican right winger? There's no trouble and there's no trespassers in my neighborhood. How many people are on my support team that are fired up and promoting our ministry? Now, that's me. I'm sure we all can fill in the blanks. And so I'm not talking about a losing of your salvation. We've already talked about how we're sealed in him. I'm not talking about how I've made all these professions of faith, but none of them stuck. That would all be the first person who needs to bow for the first time. What I'm talking about is maybe that sense of quenching the Holy Spirit. That sense of awe is a little dull. You know it's true. It's still on your hearts. You know the Holy Spirit dwells, but... There's a sense of I'm not overflowing with this thankfulness like Paul is where he, for this reason, bows before the Father. So maybe that's you this morning like me and I, I publicly want to repent and believe. <laughs> not for salvation, but before, I want to experience this God in a new way because he, he's infinite, new every morning. And then lastly, I th- think there are gonna, a minority of us in here and you can be my mentor as I walk through this journey. Who just, you have the blessing of experiencing God and his newness and his fullness. And you're just in a season of overflowing with thankfulness. And I would say for you, keep that posture in your spirit of bowing before this Father and being in awe. Ask the Lord to make it something that happens all the time. And in fact, maybe it's something that you can take out of your own realm and start blessing others with it. Blessing that neighbor who does not know the Lord. Blessing people in this church who need encouragement. Stepping into that new role, a new challenge, a new opportunity as you're overflowing where you can hide it under a bushel. No. 
but let that light shine so others may see and glorify your Father in heaven. So this morning, whether you're needing to bow for the first time, whether you're needing to come to the Lord and say, rekindle me again, creating me a clean heart, restoring to me the joy of my salvation, or whether you're overflowing and it's time to maybe step into a realm where you're branching off and helping others experience God in the way that you are. May we do it with the joy and knowledge and celebration that this is not something that's temporary. We're, in fact, only getting a glimpse of it. Listen to how Paul ends his prayer of eternal power to celebratory eternally. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever, forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, Legacy Church, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length, the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, Legacy Church, may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's worship.